the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Why are so many Americans getting high? And what does this say about us? And later, a mom normalizes middle-class living. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I don't even know what day it is. It's Wednesday. Wednesday. It's hump day. It's hump evening at this point. We hope you're having a great one. Um, If you've missed any of today's show, especially our conversation with author Caitlin Shush, we'd love to invite you to go back, catch up on the old podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And we would love to invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Brian, uh... I came across something that just said this. This is a headline, morningbrew.com. Americans love getting high. And essentially, I don't know if you've heard this, but the use of cannabis and psychedelic drugs among U.S. adults hit all-time highs last year. Wow. Yeah, there was some research done. It's been apparently like decades in the making, this this research. It's, they say, fueled by a few factors, okay? Loosening laws around marijuana and other substances. Sure, by the way, that th- I have to come back to this because that reminds me of something someone from uh, Colorado was just telling me. Changing public perception of hallucinogens and more Americans self-medicating for mental health issues. Here's some of the cannabis stats, okay? 44% mm-hmm. of young adults ages 19 to 30, and 28% of adults ages 35 to 50 reported using marijuana in the prior 12 months. That's a record high for each age group. Wow. 11% of young adults said they use cannabis on at least 20 of the prior 30 days, double the share from a decade ago. Then here's the one I wanted to talk about. This is a conversation I had with somebody, a pastor, believe it or not. Psychedelic use is up dramatically. About 8% of young adults said they use mind-altering drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, uh, which is mushrooms, in the prior year. That's double the rate from 2012. Now, I had this conversation with somebody who said, a, a, a pastor who from Colorado, of course, where it's starting to be more legal or with a prescription, I'm not exactly sure, but he is trying shrooms at a low dose, like micro dosing for his ADD and depression. Instead of he's like, you know, one of those guys who like won't take meds and kind of anti big pharma or whatever, which is very Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't like that marijuana makes him feel kind of lethargic and just like dumb. So he started microdosing shrooms. And I was like, I, it was one of those moments where I was trying to listen, but I finally was like, I didn't say, how could you do that? But I said, I just don't know if I would feel comfortable with that. Tell, <laughs> tell me about that for yourself. You know, like I was trying to like push a little tell bit, but not more. be judgy. <laughs> and he did say he's only done it in private with his wife around. And it's not like he goes around talking to his church about it. But still, I was like, oh, you're just like using shrooms like to to self-medicate. Okay. Okay. So this is 
normalized, right? Like it, this is what it feels like if almost half of Americans are using uh marijuana, which I understand is still to me is in a different category than shrooms and other psychedelics. Still, like getting high at home, getting high on the job is seeming to be just like a little more normal in the tech industry the number of the number of american workers tested positive for marijuana hit a 25-year record more than two-thirds of states allow medical or recreational use of cannabis flurry of medical studies into psychedelics has shown that in controlled settings they can be beneficial for mental illnesses there's a growing recognition in the scientific community that these drugs have untapped potential to help people but experts also warn they carry substantial risks obviously so uh <laughs> thoughts right <Brian? laughs> thoughts so the, let's start with the marijuana one yeah um is I think it has everything to do with it being normalized and legalized, right? Like, um, and I know there's difference between, you know, marijuana and the gummies and the stuff, but still, we now have stores popping up all over the place, you know, dispensaries and this and that. Um, like I was, it hit me the other day, I was listening to a podcast and the number of like radio shows and podcasts that I listened to where they're like, openly talking about yeah. marijuana like it's just like it's just normalized it's just and so i think that's one um two the the psychedelic drugs one is interesting and i don't mean interesting necessarily in a positive way um now let me say this am i gonna get myself in trouble for this maybe i think if i had a major medical issue like Cancer. I saw a video the other day of a guy with Parkinson's and what medical marijuana did for his Parkinson's was un- unbelievable. I would, if I had a major medical issue, I would try everything. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Try everything. Yeah. I actually but, think I would too, to be honest. But apart from major medical issues. Yeah. I guess what I'd want people to wrestle with is what, what are we trying to avoid? Like, what are we trying to um medicate from what are we i that's the, the question i want to get to yeah that's what i want to get to because i i think in the recreational space the recreational uses of these drugs it there's got to be it you know i i can understand that maybe there's somebody who just wants to have fun with friends and get high for a night and eat a lot of brownies and ha 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 and it's a funny memory but when adults are using this more uh, continuously to like cope with life, it's obviously some type of self-soothing or numbing ritual, addiction, whatever right. you want to call it, behavior. And I do think that's the question why. And you have to wonder if like, you know, some of the some of the rates we've been looking at, the mental health coming out of COVID, the depression, the anxiety, just the right. increased, all of that stuff increased, Right. Is that part of it? Are we just coping? And this is like our new coping mechanism. It's, hey, it's maybe a little better than alcohol. So it feels a little more acceptable. And I do think it's the same conversation. The legalities are different with some of them. But with alcohol, it's the same conversation that the church has to be willing to have. What are you self-medicating to remove yourself from? There you go. Uh, Yeah. What are you – why do you need to have a drink every night when you come home? Yeah. Yeah. After your kids go to bed? Yeah. Why do you – like, why do you feel like this need for a glass of wine if – Right. Whatever else it might be. Right. What's that about? Why do you feel like you need 
marijuana in order to calm down or this or that. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I think it's less about is it legal? Is it totally not legal? Yeah. Um, and it's more to do with what's going on in your, and maybe people can look at it and go, you know what? I just like how it makes me feel it's legal, this or that. And yeah. we might agree to disagree, but right. whatever. Um, again, moving into more harder things, like more crazy things like mushrooms and psychedelics or, you know, especially in the mid eighties, these bankers were all doing cocaine and this right. like, what, what are we, yeah. I think as pastors, as friends, as family, really the question isn't, is it permissible or not? Is it legal or not? I think the question with alcohol, with marijuana, with all of this mm. is what does it say about your soul? Like, what are you yeah. trying to medicate? What are you trying yeah. to remove yourself from? And I think yeah. everybody, it's a good question. And we, there's still studies to be done. All the people who are like, marijuana doesn't have any adverse effects. Like, most doctors don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, right. But I do think, I think the main question for people like, in the pastor world or whatever to ask is what do you try? Like, what's your hope here? Like, is yeah. it to remove yourself from your yeah. stresses. Yeah. Is, it, is this the healthiest way to do it? Um, what are we trying to do here? I think those are the important questions. I, Instead I think you're of, exactly it's right. Illegal, it's legal. It's right. permissible. It's not like, okay, great. Right. Let's talk right. the deeper question. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your soul? Yep. What, what question are you trying to answer? What pain are you trying to soothe? And then I do think another question is like, what are your kids seeing? You know, what your neighbors mm-hmm. seeing, like what, like, let's talk about that too. And the impact on the next generation. Anyway, very interesting that it's gone out so much coming up next. We're going to talk about Gnosticism and complementarianism. I'm very interested in your take on this, Brian. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, Brian, I, do, we've had Beth Felker Jones on the show before, right? We've at least talked about her stuff. We've talked about her stuff. I really like her. She was one of my professors at Wheaton. She's a, a pretty prolific substacker, if that's what you call it, blogger, and writes really interesting things. And she's she is um, talking about something that I remember this. I remember this so clearly. Somebody asked John Piper if he would use a Bible commentary written by a woman. Right. And I... In my memory, he said he would not read like a theology written by a woman. But here's what she said his answer was. The problem with women teaching, says Piper, is not that women are incompetent, which Beth Felker Jones writes, thanks, JP, exclamation point in parentheses. She says the problem is that this is a Piper quote. The problem is, quote, the dynamic between how men flourish and women flourish as God designed them to flourish. Piper claims that we can, quote, distinguish between personal direct exercises of authority that involve manhood and womanhood and indirect impersonal exercises of authority, which don't concern gender. Basically, what um, she kind of summarizes, uh, Piper classifies reading a book by a woman as impersonal. Right. He considers it licit to do so. He actually says this, reading a book, quote, puts the woman as author out of the reader's sight and in a sense takes away the dimension of her female personhood. So Piper can read a book written by a woman because he's not like looking at her personhood or experiencing her personhood. But what he will not do is learn from a woman who is in the room with him. We don't need to have a conversation. You could sell him a book. You could sell him a book. (laughs) Thank you. 
true. So I don't, we don't need to have a conversation about Piper's stance on women and men. But here's what Beth Fetler Jones does. She's a professor, by the way, at uh, Northern Seminary. I think this is so interesting. She connects this to Gnosticism. Hmm. And how in the early church in theology, you know, Gnostics claimed kind of the special knowledge of salvation. Uh, the early church, by the way, rejected Gnosticism. But this idea was kind of like the body is bad. I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying Gnosticism, but the body's bad. Right. And anything spiritual is good. So really Gnostic dualism sorts the world into two categories, spiritual and bodily or spiritual and material. And Christian thought, she, Beth Felker Jones says, cannot go along with this. For the Christian faith, God is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Anyway, she goes on to explain how we have a more holistic theology. But this is interesting because she is connecting Piper's ability to like read from a woman but not learn from a woman in the room as this sort of dualistic Gnosticism. And I think that's kind of interesting. Like I'd never thought about that before. What are your yeah. thoughts on I want to hear your thoughts as a guy, especially Brian. From what she's saying there. Yeah. First of all, my thoughts as a guy is like, like Piper outthinks himself in these. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, mean, Piper, I almost wish he would just be like, nope, I can't read from a woman. Like it's so or, weird. Or I wish he would say what most complementarians that I know say. Sure, I can. Like this mm -hmm. is about. Sure, yeah, like, he gets. He gets. He allows himself, and I think he likes it to get so into the minutia. Like you've read Piper stuff, where he's like uh, about oh, yeah. whether a man should take uh, driving directions from a woman. Right? Can the woman decide on the restaurant or whatever? There's it's some so funny stupid. jokes in there about yeah. should a man, but but like theologically, you're like, come on, Piper, come on, like, bro. Yeah, let, let's just say, hey, well, this isn't. We understand there's a million things you could pull on here. And so I think it's a little bit silly when he starts going like, well, it's impersonal. She's not in front of me. Like, can I just say it's, it's just, not a little bit silly? It's absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. It's just weird. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's so just weird. weird. It's so weird. Because I've never met complimentarian men who've sat around going, does this mean we can? And maybe it is the conversation. You've never? Just, well, I've met those men, but that's not most of the complimentarian guys I know. I will Correct. say that's not the majority. I have met those guys. Have you had sure. these conversations with people? Like, can I read your book? Can I? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I've had men say, like, I I will give, I can't read this, but I'll give it to my daughters. Like, just, and they, I think they think they're being really sort of, like, abundant and generous to me when they say that. Like, I'll pass it on to my wife and my daughters. I, you know, it's like. What do you say okay. in those words? Thank you for purchasing. Yeah, buy more. <laughs> buy it for your daughter's friends too. As long as I'm making the money, I don't care. <laughs> That's really but I That's will funny. say you're right. Like the complimentarian guys I know aren't afraid to read from a woman or even right. learn from a woman in a lot right. of settings. Yeah. So to your bigger question about Beth Felker Jones and tying this to Gnosticism. Tying this to Gnosticism. Uh I think there's a lot of Gnosticism in our day and age right now where yeah. the body doesn't matter. Yeah. It's only about your – people might be like, what do you mean? What? Anytime you hear teaching where it's like just about your soul mm -hmm. and your soul's going to fly away and the body doesn't yeah. matter and yeah. uh, all this stuff, it, it is – the Gnosticism that much of that, that, that Paul and other apostles were spending time, you know, talking about. And again, yeah. um, and I think this is a good example for her. She's like, 
Because for Piper to be like, if she's not physically in front of me, then it right. doesn't matter. But right. if again, I have a hard time with it just because it's such a weird. Here's what this is interesting because she she does say Piper would prohibit female seminary professors. He does have this to say, quote, the proper demand on the seminary teacher is to be an example, a mentor, a guide, an embodiment of the pastoral office and preparing men to fill the pastoral office. And she actually says Piper sounds a lot more Christian here than he did above because he's at least rightly acknowledging that teaching is embodied. Now, she goes on to say what he's not doing is explaining that men and women were created in the image of God. He's not wrestling with that enough. But at least she's like, at least there he's understanding that our bodies matter. And I, right. I know this is hard, Brian, you're a guy and I'm having you enter into this conversation, but it, I feel like for women, we are so often, especially in Christian evangelical circles meant to apologize for having a body. And I'm telling you, this has been like the message since I was 13 years old, entering the church. Like, I would have thought, and maybe you it mean is this. horrible. Maybe you mean that maybe help me understand this yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. I feel like, from talking to the many women that I know or this and that, especially when you're younger, the issue is that you're only seen as a body. Like it's like that. Well, yeah, but I think it's, that's like the two, the double sided coin. You're only seen as a body and you're not supposed to have that body. Like you're supposed mm. to apologize for it, hide it, make sure it one, it doesn't tempt your brothers, but also just like be really real. I mean, it's, it's very strange. And even as an adult, you know, I'm midlife right? I preach at places and I'm very aware of like my body in a room. And I don't mean that in a weird way. I just mean like, am I appropriate? Am I covered? Am I, cause you, cause this just the message your whole life is like, it's not okay for women to have a body in Christian circles. And it's very, it's, it's very strange. And some of it's cultural Christianity. Some of it's just culture in general. Yeah. Because you know what, for us guys, like I throw something on to come totally. preach, and my wife will be like, uh, you should really think about tucking that in. You should have tucked like your that. shirt like, in. Oh, yeah. I haven't even thought about it. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. a little wrinkled. Oh, I hadn't right. really thought about it. Like, right. it, it, there is a difference here. And then, you know, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I, someday we could talk more about just Piper stands on this because it's just increasingly odd. It's like, so strange. It almost not to that me, he's I... a complementarian, but that he feels the need to like be the authority defining every little like mm, it's, mm. Just, it's just uh, it's just yeah. There's a, a part take. of me's like, is he okay? Like, is he doing all right? <laughs> it's just an odd take to feel like you have to parse. Yeah. So, like, yeah. It's just weird. It's, it's a strange. Just, it's just a strange sort of hill to die on in my mind. But for whatever reason, that's where it he's is. decided to land. All right, Brian, we're gonna talk about ten traits of post-pandemic churches that are actually growing in attendance. Let's see if we agree with these when we come back. You're listening to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life, as we say on the show quite a bit. Brian and I are both pastors. But I'm curious about church attenders. Do you feel like, Brian, your your church is back in action with church attendance? Like, where are you guys at right now? Well, I totally do. Um, it's weird. Like, I feel like we're well beyond the pandemic now. I understand COVID rates are back going back up again and all of that. Yeah, stuff. this is wild. Like, like, a couple of my neighbors have COVID right now, by yeah, the way. Yeah, like, it, one it's, or two people in our church who just got over it. But Man. With that said, I hardly ever think in terms of like, are we post COVID church? But like most churches, we took a huge hit over COVID. But I feel like we have 
more momentum at the moment and it's more normal than it's been since before COVID. Like it yeah. feels like I don't know anybody in our church right now who is like not going to church because of COVID. Yeah. There's some older people in our church who still watch because they can't come or whatever else, but it, even that's not COVID related. So yeah, that's a long way of saying, yeah, I think things are very normal and, uh, and it's kind of an exciting time for churches, I think. Yeah, it's I I know like we're still like I we're I feel like we're growing and there's energy but we're definitely not where we were like before 100%. COVID. But as I've talked to like every pastor I know, they're also saying that. Willow Creek is saying that. The mega churches are saying that. Like uh, I I new normal. Like you started yeah, from a new spot. Yeah. It's like when you first planted your church. You started with this group totally. and you grew it. COVID for all of us kind of racked that group. And now you're starting with this new number of group. And I think now we're, when I say we're growing, we're growing from that. Like, it's yeah. Like, okay. We're growing and things are, things are good. We're not where we were, you know, a year or two before COVID, but things are heading in the right direction. Yeah. I totally, totally agree with that. So, um, I bring that up because Brian Dodd over at Church Leaders is talking about like certain traits of post-pandemic churches that are growing in attendance. And I'm just curious, like, what do we think about this? Is this right? Is this not right? Uh, is this just churches in general? Or is this like specifically the post-pandemic church? So he said this. The, this is the first one. And I, I kind of have a question about it. That's why I'm bringing okay, it up. Post, post-pandemic churches with growing in-person attendance are led by spiritually growing leaders. Here's why I'm questioning this. Doesn't that just also feel like yes. churches forever? Yes. You could you could replace that first word with pre-pandemic churches or I mean just you don't need my guess is this article is intended to be written about churches that are growing since COVID and this that but I think these are just churches. Churches grow uh, by spiritually growing pastors. Now, I do think it's dangerous. There, there's there's a subtle danger in this art in this list here. Uh, it is I know spiritually growing pastors whose in person attendance isn't growing. Yeah, so yeah, yes, that's a really be good point. Really careful here. Going mm. growing pastor equals growing church because then the converse has to or the inverse has to be yeah. True. Yeah, um, exactly. Shrinking, shrinking churches are led by non-growing pastors. I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I don't think that's true either because you We've can have a pastor done. who's coasting, but his church is, or her church is like dynamic because they know sort of the growth movement and We've how that works. Those, how many of those stories have we done? Uh, pastor yeah. who's yeah. crumbling right. uh, be under the burden of everything or just yep. not growing or just yep. unhealthy, but the church is exploding in numbers. Yeah. So yeah. Little, and then some of the, careful. I think that's a good point. Cause then some of the best, most like humble, faithful pastors, you know, lead little small farm churches and what's right. what, Yeah. So I think you're right. That, let's be careful about that. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're uh, engaging on this with me. Cause I had some question marks. Okay. Here's another one. Post pandemic churches with growing in-person attendance are led by pastors who have their own personal tent of meeting. Now that's obviously a very like Bible talk, but basically uh, it's kind of <laughs> weird, right? He said, basically he's talking about Moses would spend personal time with crowd. Uh, sorry. Would spend time 
away from the crowd and spend personal time with God. He says this is a modern day pastor's personal worship prayer Bible study time. This feels the same to me as what he just said. Right. Like a pastor who's growing in their relationship with God. He says he had to get to 10. He had to get to 10. He had to get to 10. I know. But he basically says like those pastors, people will be lined up to hear that pastor who spent time with God and has a fresh message from God. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm struggling I'm with this. concerned with this list. You know, everybody knows I love a good list. Mm-hmm. I think I'm concerned not just with the wording of post-pandemic, but more so of uh, post-pandemic churches with in-person growing attendance. It yeah. just feels like the end goal for this person is it's growing attendance. growing attendance. Yep, yep. Uh, doesn't it feel like it would be better written – um, post, uh, fine. I'll keep his post pandemic wor- world. Yeah. Healthy post pandemic churches. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. Staff who are this healthy. Yeah. It could be bigger, could be smaller, but it's right. just healthier. Right. I feel like this is playing into the old healthy churches grow, grow. Uh, it is and that, and which is a model, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, I just be careful with this, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think let's be careful with it too. So let's, let's move on from, from Brian Dodd and some of the stuff he's talking about. And let's talk about a healthy church. Like, what do you think a post pandemic healthy church looks like? Um, like, I think he's right about a lot of this. It's pastors yeah. and leaders who are connected to God. They are, they are growing. Um, I think it's, you know, a church that is, gospel centric in the mm-hmm. sense that they're, they're focusing on the majors here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's an outreach element. Um, I've been given a lot of thought to this one. I, I do think Aubrey, there's something to be said about healthy churches. Um, healthy churches have kids in them. Mm. Like I think there's something mm. to be said about an intergenerational, but especially that youngest generation where kids are being grown up. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I love that. There might be some outliers to that out there, but I think in general, mm. churches with no children, there's there's something going on there. Yeah, that's um, interesting. You know, good leadership structure, outreach, where they're trying to, they're, they're not just insulated. All of this mm-hmm. stuff, I think, makes for a healthy church. What do you think? Community, a depth of community of the of family within within the church. Yeah. One thing that Brian Dodd does say that I would agree with, although it's even funny language, because I don't think this is actually most churches. He says, post-pandemic churches with growing attendance, in-person attendance, are led by leaders who are out front, which means he says... Here's what he says. You can no longer lead with full effectiveness from the green room. Now, I don't, there's not a lot of pastors who have a green room. Let's be honest. Like that's the rare pastor. But what he's getting at is growing churches are led by leaders who actually like the people have access to the leaders. They're in relationship. They're in the lobby. They're in the parking lot. I would add they're in the living room. They're at the hospital bedside. They're, you know, at the coffee shop, like they aren't the quote celebrity pastor. And that's something else I would add to that. Again, I, that's not, that's a small percentage of churches that have a celebrity pastor or a green room at all. Right. But I do think to remove any pastor from that kind of mentality and actually be a pastor of the people is a healthy sign of a church too. I would like to just one time 
work in a church or set it up where I have a green room so that oh, I can yeah. say, I'm not going to sit in my green room. I'm going <laughs> but to I have go out the people, but still be able to flex about the fact that I've got a green room. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. I've spoken at several churches with green rooms and it's, yeah, it's a thing. I mean, they have like deodorant in there for like the speaker and like hair products and like who's mints. in the green room. Only Who's the person, that? only the person speaking. So what are you doing? Like, don't you, aren't you lonely? Aren't you? Like- <laughs> yes. I always reject it. I'm always like, I want to go like worship or I want to go walk the lobby and see faces. Like, it's so weird to me. I, I do run back there and like, I'll brush my teeth real quick. I'll sure, put the odor, sure. I'll spray my hair. But otherwise, yeah, you're just like sitting there like spinning in your chair, like, but, but I think some people, like, yeah, some they want like- that sit there like for the uh, like they do they probably pray they're probably on their knees i'm not that spiritual i'm like let's let me go i'm even an i'm even an introvert and i'm like i don't want to be in here this is weird this is so weird anyway coming up next a mom went viral uh sharing something online that is so mundane it's meaningful we're going to talk about that when we return you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life it's the end of the show. If you missed any of today's show, I know I already said this, but we had a great conversation with author Caitlin Shesh. Her book, The Bible, The Ballot and the Bible, The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Bible, Has Been Used yeah, and Abused it. and Where We Go From Here. You're going to want to pick that up and want to listen on our podcast to our interview with Caitlin. But we want to end the show. Something kind of fun, Brian. This this uh, GMA picked up this uh, video of a mom who's basically just giving a tour of her very average house. I want to play the audio because I think it's actually pretty entertaining, but I want to talk about why this is like connecting with people so much. So let's take a listen. Let's take a tour of my average middle-class house. There are piles of shoes always by the front door, floors that are in desperate need of refinishing. This door has been here for three years and it's still not painted. A refrigerator full of pictures and artwork. A drying rack is a permanent fixture on the counter because we don't have a dishwasher. We have window ACs in every room. And yes, it's held on by fancy duct tape. Thanks to hoverboards and vacuums, our baseboards are full of chips. We only have one bathroom in the house and it has a two-in-one shower tub combo. This is our very plain master bedroom. And yes, we have two blankets because my husband and I do not share. But then we do have to share this one small closet. Not only do we have a junk drawer in the kitchen, but we also have one in the living room because one just isn't enough. Piles of blankets that don't match our living room. And last but not least, a garage that does not fit a car because we have too much junk in it. Okay, so... the. There's some funny things if you actually watch the video, you could pick this up on on the audio. But, you know, some things like you and I were kind of talking about off air, totally normal. The pile of shoes on the floor. Absolutely. The, you know, Kevin and I actually used to, we don't anymore, but we used to have two different blankets on our beds because we didn't share blankets. So I was like, I connect with that. Some other things like. I feel like she could go to TJ Maxx and get matching like blankets for her house. Like there's some, there's some room for improvement, maybe. Uh, but I think the larger question is why do you think people are so drawn to this and sharing it? Why did GMA pick it up? Like why is this hitting with people? That's a great question. I think, first of all, uh, 
there, I told you there were so many things in here that I was like, <laughs> yes, that's my house from yeah. the floorboards to this. Now, I do think most middle class homes have air conditioning and or a dishwasher, but the other stuff hit Carrie and I, we have one bathroom in the house. Yeah, I, we have one bathroom in the house that has the tub shower. Yeah, have, the tub shower. Yep. You know, we have this. Like so much of this was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, I think this is hitting because of uh, most of us. We're going to do a story about this later in the week, uh, how it relates to our hospitality. But I think most mm-hmm. of us think everybody else has perfect houses. A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, uh, you and our producer Laura were joking that this is like the Joanna Gaines has done this to us type of thing, like <laughs> making us feel like we have to have this perfectly aesthetic, organized. Everybody yeah, that everybody else has a beautiful house, a spacious house, a mm-hmm. trendy house. A yes. And we're the only ones with ta- with blankets stacked up in the corner and right and like scuffs on the scuffs on the floorboard or the the walls, yeah, hundred percent. And stuff, you know, a drying rack by the, the right. I think the reason I think this resonates is because it normalizes what most of our houses a hundred percent, and it tears down the oh, if only I had what they. Most people you're looking at have that. Like that's yeah, what they have. Yeah. Own it, love it, make it the best you can. But yeah. this is what it means to be. This is what it means to like live in America. I do I think too, like there part of me wondered if it if it, you know, hit so hard is because most of the time when you're on social media seeing house tours, it's either realtors selling beautiful homes or it's honestly celebrities or influencers that are like talking about how they made their home beautiful. They got these pillows and these rugs and you get the tour of the before and the after. And it is like, I find myself like, sometimes I can't watch them. I can't even, I used to watch HGTV. I had to stop because I was like, I want everything they have. My house is terrible and ugly and the worst house in the whole world. And we've had the same couch for 20 years and it's, you know, like, so I think that was part of it. It was the normalizing and just like, such a in such opposition to what it was like a counter liturgy to what you see online when it comes to homes online that you see even like i i laugh about this even sometimes you get these videos of moms who are like i'm messy and it's very calculated messy it's Mm -hmm. like cute messy like appropriate messy and even that i kind of eye roll at because i'm like you you curated your messiness. That does not feel like an actual livable situation. No one is living like that. So I think this kind of felt like, yeah, she tidied up a little, but it just felt like, yep, we have unfinished floors. There's dishes out. Like you said, there's shoes on the floor. And I think the question is, should that keep us from our hospitality or do we begin to just invite people into our real life situations? And this is what we're going to tackle to Christianity Day or Gospel Coalition. One of them wrote up on this about mm. how how this uh, – it's so funny you brought this up because I hadn't shown you the article that we're going to do tomorrow. Oh, I can't it's wait to talk about it. It's literally how HGTV has ruined our hospitality, our willingness no. to be hospitable. Oh, we have to t- – I it can't wait for that. Today. It's literally the title of it. Like HGTV no way. has ruined our hospitality or something like that because – and Carrie and I have this talk all the time because I think we're on opposite ends of the spectrum where I will not care. And that's bad. Like, I'm yeah. like, whatever. Yeah. But she takes so much like, 
personal, like it says something about yeah. us. If our yeah. house is in her words, quote unquote, embarrassing. I feel that way too. Yeah. It's a regular tension in our marriage because I'm mm. like, let's have people over. And she's like, I don't want to because mm. of that. Not all mm. the time. I don't want yeah. to make it seem like we're not. No, no, no. I understand. But there's this feel of like, you know, we go to these other people's houses and it looks all this. And that's why totally. I think this resonates. People are going, oh, cool. That looks like my house. That looks like we my have, house. We that's have one normal. that we all share. And yeah. We and we yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very relatable. I did feel high class here that I've got our air conditioning and a, and a dishwasher. I'm I like, know. Oh. And I, de- I definitely was a little like, I, I need to take her shopping. Like the, she she could make some upgrades in her house. Would be cute. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll continue this conversation. It sounds like tomorrow when we're back from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.